Joseph went and told Pharaoh, My father and brothers, with their flocks and herds and everything they own, have come from the land of Canaan and are now in Goshen. He chose five of his brothers and presented them before Pharaoh. Pharaoh asked the brothers, What is your occupation? Your servants are shepherds, they replied to Pharaoh, just as our fathers were. They also said to him, We have come to live here for a while, because the famine is severe in Canaan, and your servants' flocks have no pasture. So now, please let your servants settle in Goshen. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you, and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen. And if you know any of them with special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him before Pharaoh. After Jacob blessed Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked him, How old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my pilgrimage are a hundred and thirty. My years have been few and difficult, and they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt and gave them property in the best part of the land, the district of Ramesses, as Pharaoh directed. Joseph also provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food, according to, number, to the number of their children. There was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying, and he brought it to Pharaoh's palace. When the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan was gone, all Egypt came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is all gone. Then bring your livestock, said Joseph. I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock, since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, their sheep and goats, their cattle and donkeys. And he brought them through that year with food in exchange for all their livestock. When that year was over, they came to him the following year and said, We cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, there is nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we perish before your eyes, we and our land as well? Buy us and our land in exchange for food, and we with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Give us seed so that we may not live so that we may live and not die, and that land may not become desolate. So Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's, and Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. However, he did not buy the land of the priests because they received a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and had food enough from the allowance Pharaoh gave them. That is why they did not sell their land. Joseph said to the people, Now that I have bought you and your land today for Pharaoh, here is seed for you 
so you can plant the ground. But when the crop comes in, give a fifth of it to Pharaoh. The other four fifths you may keep as seed for the fields and as food for yourselves and your households and your children. You have saved our lives, they said. May we find favour in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in bondage to Pharaoh. So Joseph established it as law concerning land in Egypt, still enforced today, that a fifth of the produce belongs to Pharaoh. It was only the land of the priests that did not become Pharaoh's. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favour in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt, but when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say, he said. Swear to me, he said. Then Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of the staff. Brilliant, thank you so much uh, for reading, Christine. Um, Keep that passage open in front of you. We're going to be looking at that. And actually also just the the last few verses of chapter 46. Um, So if you've got a Bible, that would be useful. If not, open your service sheets, and I've printed those out for you so you can follow along. Let's pray as we uh, come to these words together. Heavenly Father, on a day where we remember those who've given up their life for us, and also on a day when we remember the wonderful gift of new life, we pray that spiritually speaking, Heavenly Father, as we think about in this passage, may we be willing to give up our lives in pursuit of the true life of knowing the Lord Jesus. Whatever he requires of us, we pray that we would give it to him. We thank you so much for your words. We thank you that in them we hear of you and we see more of you and your son. We pray that you would open our eyes now in Jesus' name. Amen. In a book I was reading recently, the author points out two photos. I'm just going to give this to you, Kimmy. There you go. Enjoy that. (laughs) The author points out two photos. of the same kind of event, but 20 years apart. It's a picture of Tiger Woods, the American golfer, winning a tournament. And in the early photo, you can see every member of the crowd with their, 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 in the background craning their heads, desperate to see the ball drop into the hole. Faces filled with that anticipation and excitement. In the later picture of a very similar moment, You can see the crowd, but this time you can't see their faces. Do you know why? Because everyone's got their phones out. Nobody's actually seeing it with their eyes. They're seeing it through their phones. Now, I could very easily spend the next 30 minutes talking about how smartphones and tech is ruining our lives, but but that is not what I'm going to talk to you about. Here is the point. Why was everyone taking a picture? Because they wanted to capture the moment. And ever since we've had smartphones that have amazing photos, that is all we want to do, isn't it? We want to capture the moment. Put it another way, you you want to hold on to the moment. 
kind of way of living life, isn't it? Desperate to try and hold on to the life in front of you, not wanting to let the moment pass. Perhaps even always looking back with a tinge of nostalgia about the past. But for the Christian, we need a different perspective on life now. Not the kind of perspective that's always trying to hold on to the moment, to capture it, but with hearts set on the future. So in the stories, in the account of Joseph so far, we've seen that he is now risen and exalted. He's been through the death of prison. He's now risen and he is exalted. He is second in command of all Egypt. He has saved the world from famine and he has reconciled with his brothers and his family. And then he sent his brothers back home to bring his father with them back to Egypt so that the family can be reunited. Now, Joseph and Jacob, Jacob is Joseph's father, they've not seen each other for, for over 20 years. And most of that time, Jacob has assumed that Joseph is dead. So, so you look at the joy of them when they meet, 46 verse 29, as soon as Joseph appeared before them, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. I just want to notice something before we get into the, the, the main stuff of what we're looking at this morning. Jacob, now that he's seen Joseph, he kind of feels like his life is done. So 46 verse 30, Israel, or that is Jacob, said to Joseph, Now I am ready to die, since I have seen for myself that you are still alive. Jacob felt that there was nothing left for him. He'd seen his son, that there are no more moments that Jacob wants to hold on to or to capture. He's ready to go home. He's ready to die. But Jacob lives another 17 years. And this isn't a big thing, but I want to mention it, maybe for the sake of some of those who are a little bit older. It's possible, isn't it, that you will get to a point where you think, I'm ready to die, I'm ready to go and be with the Lord. That there are no more moments that I want to capture or hold on to. And yet the Lord doesn't take you. The Lord gives you another 17 years or whatever. That can be quite hard. But here's the thing, if the Lord had taken Jacob at this point, Jacob's family and us would have missed out on some of the most wonderful promises in the Bible. We're going to come to those in the coming weeks. The Lord still has a crucial role for Jacob, even though Jacob is ready to go. I've mentioned before this friend that I visit regularly. He's pretty much bed-bound now, and his body has almost stopped working. And sometimes in his honesty, he will say, Lord, I'm ready to go. Take me. And he wonders why the Lord hasn't. I don't know. And sometimes I pray the same prayer. Lord, take him. He's ready to go. But then I say to him, at least one reason the Lord hasn't taken him, well, it's for my sake and the sake of his other friends. His example, his faith, not perfect, but his example, his faith, it informs me. It shapes me. So you may feel, Lord, I am ready to go, but he gives you another 17 years. And maybe that's because the Lord is still working in you or through you for his sake, for your sake, maybe for our sake here at Redeemer. The Lord is giving you another 17 years. Okay, look, one thing the Lord wants Jacob to do in those 17 years is to point his family to the future. So that's our first point, living for the future. 
Now, at the end of chapter 46, all of Joseph's family finally make this move to Egypt to be with Joseph. And Joseph wants to present his family to Pharaoh. 46, 31, he says, I'm going to present you to Pharaoh. And then if you look at 46, 33, he says to his brothers, when Pharaoh calls you in and asks, what is your occupation? You should answer. Your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood, just as our fathers did. Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. Joseph is getting his family ready to visit Pharaoh, and you get the sense that he's a little bit nervous, that this is what you'll need to say. And then in chapter 47, verse 2, he only picks five of his brothers to go before Pharaoh. I don't know what he's thinking, but is he thinking there must be five of them who can make a good impression? I remember when my parents first met Laura's parents, I was nervous. I remember talking to Laura beforehand, what are they going to talk about? I thought I had to sit down with them and and say to mum and dad, look, these are good things that you could have a conversation about with Laura's parents as if they were five-year-olds. Joseph seems nervous. He even tells his brothers not to mention that they are shepherds. So back in chapter 46, verse 33, Pharaoh will ask you, what is your occupation? And he says to them, basically, whatever you do, don't say you are shepherds. Egyptians can't stand shepherds. I don't know why. Maybe they thought they were smelly or dim. Whatever it is, they think shepherds are detestable. Chapter 46, verse 34. Just don't say you're shepherds. Instead, just say you're, you're, you're kind of, you tend livestock. Something vague. Do you know what? I don't know what the difference actually is between someone who tends livestock and someone who is a shepherd. It's like a car dealer saying, I'm involved with mobile technology. Whatever you do, don't say you're shepherds. Well, eventually Pharaoh sees the five brothers and he asks them, 47 verse 3, what is your occupation? And you can imagine Joseph standing in the corner thinking, don't say your shepherds, don't say your shepherds, don't say your shepherds. Verse 3, your servants are shepherds, they replied to Pharaoh, just as our fathers were. And the thing is, I think the brothers are right. They are right to be honest about who they are, even if the Egyptians think shepherds are detestable. It's not like they're being awkward or difficult. In many ways, they will conform and fit in with Egyptian practices, but they are clear from the start, we are not Egyptians. We are shepherds. Like our fathers, we are not going to change our identity. There's something here for us, isn't there? There's a thinker and a writer in the States called Aaron Wren who talks about how things have changed for Christians in the West. He says that for a long time to be a Christian was considered a positive thing. It added a benefit and a blessing to society. And then from around the mid-90s, he said, well, to be a Christian, it moved to being a neutral thing. You're a Christian, you're a Muslim, you're an atheist, great, doesn't really matter. It's a neutral thing. But more recently, to be a Christian is a negative thing. The teachings of Jesus on marriage, on protecting the unborn, on sexuality, on gender, they are harmful, they are dangerous, or at least they are considered harmful and dangerous. You could say they are detestable. That's why I love Joseph's brothers here. 
We're not livestock herders. We're shepherds. You may find that detestable, but that is who we are. Brothers and sisters, we're not religious. We're not interested in some vague God to keep everyone happy and not offend anyone. We follow Christ. Even if the world finds us detestable, that is who we are. And the next thing they say to Pharaoh is also pretty striking. First, we're not Egyptians. Second, and we're not staying. Verse 4. They also said to him, we have come to live here for a while. Because the famine is severe in Canaan and your servants' flocks have no pasture. Now the word hidden in that phrase, live here for a while, is the word sojourn. It means kind of passing through. The brothers are staying in Egypt, but it's temporary. You know, for all their faults, and uh, we've read the story, they've got some pretty big faults, these brothers. They, They still seem to be committed to the promises of God. They know that God has promised to bless them and bless the world through them as a family that will then become the nation Israel. But the the place of blessing, it's not Egypt. It is the land of Canaan. And that is what the brothers have got their hearts set on. That's what they're holding on to. Egypt isn't their home. Sure, they'll live there for a while, but they're not staying forever. This is Joseph's brothers at their best. They're standing before the most powerful man in the known world, surrounded by the gold and the grandeur and the glory of Egypt, and they say, we're not Egyptian, we're shepherds like our fathers, and we're not staying. It's quite impressive, isn't it? But don't think of them as being aloof or or cutting themselves off. You see, three times in these verses, the brothers say to Pharaoh in verse 3 and 4, we are your servants. And we're going to see in a moment this group of people, God's people, do so much to bless Egypt. That they're not aloof. But they are clear. We're not Egyptian and we're not staying. And that's a good stance for us to have, isn't it, towards the world around us. First, we we, we must never stand aloof. We must never be unconcerned about the needs and troubles of those around us. We are human. We are made to be attached to a place, to a people, to work for the prosperity of where the Lord has put us. So yes, that means we work, we pay our taxes, we educate our children, we care for the poor and the uh, ill-treated. We we defend our nation if it is attacked. On a day like today, that's what we're doing. We're remembering those who serve their nation in that way. Brothers and sisters who've gone before us in doing that. We speak up for the defenseless, the unborn, and we speak against abortion. We speak for what will lead to human flourishing, the law of God and his good ways. We buy homes. We start businesses. We get involved. We're not aloof. But at the same time, when we stand before the gold and the grandeur and the glory of the world, we say, we are not of this world and we're not staying Then Jacob comes before Pharaoh. And on the face of it, his sons have just met Pharaoh. Now the father meets meets Pharaoh. On the face of it, this meeting is all wrong. Verse 7. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him before Pharaoh. After Jacob blessed Pharaoh, okay, Jacob blesses Pharaoh, 
And Jacob does the same thing in verse 10. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went from his presence. It's the wrong way around, isn't it? Jacob is an old, half-starving man. He has come to Egypt because he is desperate. His family are on the verge of death. What is he doing pronouncing a blessing on Pharaoh? What has he got to give? What's he doing saying to Pharaoh, you need my blessing. I will proclaim good things over you. I've got things for you. Why is Jacob blessing Pharaoh? Because like his sons, he is faithfully and fully committed to the promises of God, the promise of something bigger, something better, something eternal. Let me explain. Jacob blesses Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh asks him, how old are you? I mean, is that Pharaoh being a little bit dismissive? What have you got to offer me, old man? But look at Jacob's answer. The years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult. And they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. My years are few? 130? Doesn't sound few, does it? But interestingly, Jacob uses the same word that his sons used. He literally says, the years of my sojourning are 130. You see, he is saying life on earth is temporary. I am passing through. His whole life has been a pilgrimage. He is trying to get somewhere else. He's been looking for something more, something better. Jacob, like his sons, he knows that he's not staying, not just in Egypt, but in this world. He knows that the Lord has promised greater things for him and greater things for his family. And so, yeah, 130 years, well, that isn't very many in comparison to eternity. Hebrews 11, talking about Jacob, says this. It's in your handouts, or it'll be on the screen as well. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They didn't receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Verse 16 They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Jacob is only passing through. His 130 years are few and difficult compared to the better country, the heavenly country that God has promised. And that is why he blesses Pharaoh. Pharaoh may have all the treasures and powers this world can offer. He may have the greatest kingdom on earth, but it is nothing compared to what God has promised. Nothing compared to the better country, the heavenly country. So the one who seemingly has nothing, but is fully trusting in the Lord of the universe, is able to say to the one who seemingly has everything, you need what I have. In a moment's thought, and you realize that there's another time in the Bible, isn't there? when someone who seemingly had nothing came before the greatest power in the known world. Jesus had been arrested. His friends had deserted him, seemingly powerless. And Jesus comes before Pilate, the representative of the Roman Empire, the greatest power on earth. 
And Jesus says to Pilate in John 18 and 19, you only have power because it comes from my father. He says to Pilate, I am king of a greater kingdom, a kingdom not of this world. And he says to Pilate, I am telling you the truth. Will you believe? Will you come onto my side? The Lord Jesus, at the moment of his greatest weakness, can stand before the greatest power in the world and say, I have something you need. I have something greater and better. Rome, Pilate, you need what I have. And he proves it, doesn't he? He dies and he rises again. And through his death and resurrection, he establishes that everlasting kingdom, a heavenly kingdom that is infinitely greater than the kingdom of Rome. And I just think for us, there is a courage here that we need to imitate, isn't there? Or a confidence at least. As we pass through this world, as we pilgrimage to a glorious future, we need to be able to confidently stand before the world and say, we have something that you need. We have Jesus Christ. We have a heavenly kingdom. It is infinitely greater and infinitely better and everlasting. The Lord Jesus is risen and exalted. His heavenly kingdom has broken in and it will last forever. We don't stand before the greatness and glory and grandeur of the world in need of their wisdom, their resources, their approval. We stand like Jacob before Pharaoh. You need what we have. So we live for the future. We are not of this world. We are not staying. And we have something greater. A king and a kingdom that is eternal and infinitely more glorious than all the treasures and glory of Egypt or Rome or Western Europe or China. We are not of this world. We're not staying because we have something greater. Living for the future. Secondly, living under blessing. Chapter 47 begins and ends with God's people, the Israelites. I did have some stuff that I was going to talk about right at the end of of the chapter, but we haven't got time to look at that when Jacob gets Joseph to promise that he will bury his body outside of of Egypt. We might look at that in midweek groups. But in the middle, Israel to start with, Israel at the end, but in the middle of this chapter, we see that the focus moves to Egypt. We've seen the commitment of God's people to God's promises and and their hope for the future. But but there is a meantime. They they have to wait. And there's always a meantime, isn't there? You plan a holiday. You plan a wedding. Expecting a baby. There's a meantime. You've got to wait. So what about the present? What about life now? Well, in verses 13 to 26, we see that the present can be a time of blessing. But the, the blessing doesn't necessarily look like what we think it might look like. So Jacob blesses Pharaoh. He proclaims goodness to Pharaoh. And to some extent, we see something of what that blessing is in verses 13 to 26. But as I say, at first, it doesn't look like blessing. So we're reminded that the famine is still ravaging the land, verse 13. 
There was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. Now first, the people come to Egypt to buy grain, but soon all the money runs out. And the famine rages on. And so the people come to Joseph and they say, give us food, verse 15. Why should we die? Our money is all gone. And Joseph replies, I will sell you grain in exchange for your livestock. Well, then the people start handing over their livestock to Joseph, but soon the livestock runs out, and in desperation they say, verse 19, there's nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. And so Joseph takes their lands, verse 20. The land became Pharaoh's. And Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. Hand over the money, hand over their livestock, hand over their land. They become slave-like. And in return, Joseph gives them grain. I said, these verses show us how the Lord blesses Egypt, but this doesn't look much like a blessing, does it? Joseph takes everything away from the people And in return, he gives them grain, gives them bread. But interestingly, that isn't how the people see it. They see Joseph as a savior, verse 25. You have saved our lives. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. See, in moments of extremity, you realize what actually matters, don't you? You realize what actually has worth, money or food, cows or food, land or food, death or life. What does it gain a man to keep all his money and all his cows and sheep and goats and all his lands and fields, but to lose his life? See, Joseph has blessed Egypt with the most fundamental blessing that there is, the blessing of life itself. And remember, Joseph is a picture of Jesus. And that is true even here. The way Joseph treats the Egyptians is a picture of how Jesus treats us. But there is one difference. Jesus demands more. You see, it's interesting. The people offer their bodies to Joseph in verse 18. They offer to become full-blown slaves with no independence whatsoever. But Joseph doesn't do that, at least not fully. He takes their money, their livestock, and their lands, but he doesn't take their bodies. Instead, he gives them grain to grow, and he sends them home and says, go rebuild your life. Yes, you've got to pay a tax, 20% tax. That's not so bad, is it, really? Uh, I think we'd all appreciate just 20% tax. But yes, you've got to go and pay some tax. But no, go Take the grain, rebuild your lives. But Jesus, when we come to Jesus, he demands even more than Joseph demanded because he demands everything. Mark 8, 34, Jesus says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Joseph demands a lot from the people. Jesus demands everything 
from his people. He wants us to lose our life to him, our money, our possessions, our livelihoods, our lands, our bodies, our very life. We have to lay it down at the feet of Jesus. Because he is our saviour. The one who saves us from sin and death and hell and Satan. And for, for Jesus to give us that life, if that means I have to lose everything to him, well then it is worth it, isn't it? To gain everlasting life. You see, when we experience Jesus as saviour, we also experience him as Lord. The one who has authority over everything that we have. We cry out like the people in Egypt, Jesus, you have saved our lives. We give ourselves in bondage to you. But even that bondage is a blessing. To put every area of our life under the lordship of Christ, that is a blessing. It strikes me that in our culture at the moment, people seem more lost than ever. I think 60, 70 years ago, whatever it might have been, there was a sense in which we can get rid of God and we can still know what life means and we can still work out the best way to live and it'll be fine. But the truth is you can't do that. You can't move God from the center of everything and think that you're just going to find that life makes sense. It doesn't. And I think as we look around, the sense that people have lost or forgotten how to live, how to be human forgotten what marriage means or the purpose of parenting or how to be a man or how to be a woman, how to use money, how to form deep and lasting friendships, how to live our lives. There was an article in, uh, online that I was reading over the weekend. Ayan Ali, she was or still is a columnist and a journalist um, and a campaigner. She's been on an incredible journey, a, a massive change. She was grew up as a Muslim, she then embraced atheism in a very strong and ardent way. And over the weekend, she's written this article to say she's become a Christian. It's interesting reading it. She says, I have turned to Christianity because ultimately I found life without any spiritual solace unendurable. Indeed, very nearly self-destructive. Atheism failed to answer a simple question, what is the meaning and purpose of life? Without God, what is the meaning and purpose of life? What is specifically the meaning of the money that we have and the families that we build and the education that we go through and the politics that we get involved? What is the meaning and purpose of any of it? Without God, it's not clear. Without God, it is unendurable. But when we lose our lives to Jesus, when we make Jesus Lord of our money and careers and marriages and hopes and dreams, when we lose all those things to Jesus, well, then we find them. This short story written by Carson McCullough is called A Tree, A Rock, and A Child. And it's a, about this man's search for meaning. He has all these experiences. He meets all kinds of people. But he says the bits of life just didn't fit together. And then he meets someone, falls in love. He says this, it'll be on the screen. Then she came along. She was like an assembly line for my soul. I run these little pieces of myself through her and I come out complete. That is Jesus. 
He is the assembly line for our souls. If we run our life through him, if we lose our money, our career, our relationships, our hopes and our dreams, if we surrender all those things to Jesus, then under his lordship, we discover the right way and the best way to live. Lose your money to Jesus and he will show you how to use it. Lose your marriage to Jesus and he will show you how to be married. Lose everything to Jesus, your motherhood, your fatherhood, your politics, your career, and he will give those things back to you with a clearer sense of what they're for and how to use them. There is blessing in the present. Yes, we lose our lives to Jesus so that we can gain it for eternity, but even now, Jesus, you have saved our lives. We give ourselves in bondage to you. Lose your life to Jesus and you will find it eternally and in the present. And it may be that you're not a Christian, you've never done that. All I can say is there's no better day to do it than today. To discover what Jesus means when he says, lose your life for me and you will find it. This could be the greatest day of your life. So we're to live for the future. We're not of this world, we're not staying because we have something greater. But in the present, we live under the blessing of Jesus as Lord. Moment of quiet, and then we're going to pray.